All right, people, Labor Day has come and gone. The summer is officially over, and we are ready to kick off the fall season to head into the rest of 2022 award season, as I like to call it. There was a bunch of Emmy Awards winners that happened over the weekend. The Don't Worry Darling drama that's coming out of Venice Film Festival is already heating up, and we are here to talk about the premiere of a show that felt doomed from not even just the and not even just from the announcement of the premiere, just from like when it was originally going to happen. I don't even remember when they first announced this. I think it was like two or three years ago. I want to say back in 2019, 2020. I got to check and look when they officially bought the rights. But we are here. I'm joined with, once again, my good friend, Eli Holicky. He hasn't been on since our Barry episode in order to talk about the premiere of Amazon's. I need to preface that. that this is Amazon's, not Tolkien's. Amazon's, Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Eli, you got anything to say before we get this started? Um... Not really, just, uh, I, yeah, I think you, I think you know my episode. feelings on it. Saving yeah. it for the episode, yeah, that's what I like to hear. All of that and more on tonight's episode of the Talking TV Podcast. Alright, what is up, people? Happy to be back. Like I said, we took last week off. Uh, what's it called? Just a lot of stuff going on the behind the scenes uh, for myself personally, but we are back. We are pretty much, I think, going to be going consistently for every week. Obviously, you know, albeit if there are certain weeks where it ends up getting a little slow for the rest of the year up until the end of the year when we wrap up with our coverage of Avatar The Way of Water. But we're kicking off the fall season with The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. And this is something that feels like it has been doomed from just the get-go and the announcement, right, for just a variety of different reasons, right? The fact of, I mean, if we want to go back even, like, before Amazon's acquisition of the rights, which that feels like we could do a whole podcast in and of itself, I feel like just the overall feeling in the in the room towards Lord of the Rings, I feel like that really started with the Hobbit movies because what's so weird about Lord of the Rings that kind of differentiates it from a lot of the other pop culture things that we've been dealing with over the last couple of years is Lord of the Rings felt so rooted in the decade that it came out, which is the 2000s, which is this era of, again, these very big budget, high concept, really crazy, a lot of money, a lot of VFX thrown at it, but at the same time, very contained stories. You know, you have the Matrix trilogy, the Star Wars prequel trilogy, the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy that starts during that time period, a couple of, uh, the Sam a couple of superhero trilogies, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, Brian Singer's X-Men, to name a few. And the whole thing about that is the Lord of the Rings trilogy, when it came out in the early 2000s, felt like, it was just the king of all those. It was just, I think, think we could both agree, Eli, those movies are pretty much masterclasses as far as everything that it is they accomplish. You know, their adaptation, their visuals, their technical prowess, both in front of and behind the camera, you know? And it all came from, again, just this place of love and passion. The fact that Peter Jackson was so vehemently diehard about making sure that they adapted Tolkien the right way. And the fact that he was, I feel like out of all of those other trilogies that I just named, and for the most part, I think those are some pretty damn good ones, a few exceptions here and there. It just felt like those ones, it felt like there was just the most love, the most passion, the most fervor put into them. It's the reason why we can still come back to those movies over and over again 20 years after their release. It's why, again, people will sit down for like the nine and a half hours of watching them. But the thing is that when Return of the King ends, you know, it's been a source of memes for years. It feels like an ending. It feels like an ending to the story, you know? And even though there is the there was The Hobbit and there was The Silmar Silmarillion, 
you'll have to let me know later if I pronounce that right, and all this other, like, kind of ancillary material that goes into the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? It always felt like that was the story, right? So just from the pop culture standpoint, then about a decade later, we get the Hobbit movies, and those, again, the discussion and the podcast of the consensus has already been come to as far as those movies go, as far as, yeah, those no reason for that to have been a trilogy. You know, Jackson only did it because he wanted to make sure that those got made, because Guillermo del Toro was going to do it, and then he ended up stepping away, and the studio was not going to let it happen. So it's been kind of an interesting and rocky road that Lord of the Rings has had since its initial conclusion 20 years ago. And so now we have this premiere of the show, and I mean, Eli, like, you're, you're, you're pretty much fully aware of, like, the whole acquisition around it right like uh, as far as the, how that went down and everything like what was it oh was yeah that, yeah that was oh, something yeah. like what like the what was that like the most expensive acquisition like at the time it was actually earlier than i thought it was i thought it happened in like 2019 2020 the acquisition amazon actually ac- acquiring the rights um to obviously the the lord of the rings property happened in november of 2017 which oh, wow. uh for, for a whopping 250 million i want to say that was like the most expensive like, television acquisition ever. They finally got production going during the pandemic. I think, what, what, what was it? They spent, like, what, like, $715 million or something something ridiculous like that on, on uh, just this season alone? I believe the number that I've been seeing was around $460 million around there. Um, on average, budget per episode is about three-quarters of the entirety of Game of Thrones' final season. Right, so. which is... Put that mind blowing to me. Yeah, which is mind blowing. You take like you just think about how expensive that last season of Game of Thrones was, and that was only six episodes. This is eight. I know it's like not that much, but like this is there was there was a lot of money that was going into this show, you know? And I think that's kind of where we can kind of start this conversation as far as that goes. Because again, obviously the Lord of the Rings movies were known for being large, these large, expensive, big budget movies. And obviously, again, just because of the pandemic and the nature of streaming and everything that we've already talked about on many, many different episodes. The obviously the the focus of kind of where these studios are wanted to shift and focus their efforts on again a lot of studios that were kind of all in on streaming during the pandemic are turning away from it because Wall Street is of course cowering about the long term effects of it you know Warner the, the whole Warner Brother Discovery thing is an absolute mess right now they're just like completely slashing their roster going forward but Amazon is just still trucking they still got that money and they were very very adamant about getting the rights to this property you know and kind of where I feel like it comes down to is there was a big difference between Jackson who wanted to make those movies because he knew it was the opportunity of a lifetime. He was kind of a low budget. He was kind of known for his low budget horror films that he did in Great Britain before he had a couple of mid budget level of mainstream American successes before he got literally the opportunity of a lifetime. So much so that he kind of cashed the entire rest of his career out of it. He only made a few movies, a few more movies before he did the Hobbit in between um, the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies. And immediately I feel like off the bat, regardless of what our thoughts on the episode are, I feel like we can both kind of sense that like, yeah, Amazon, only did this for money we're in the age of just what ip is gonna be the the biggest and the most marketable and they're like okay what's still a big one lord of the rings okay it's been almost a decade now since the last hobbit movie premiere that was 2014 you know we're only a couple months away from 2023 it's literally been 10 years since the first hobbit movie premiered so like okay that's ripe for the picking so they make this deal so eli I've been talking a lot about this, so before we actually get into the actual episode itself, just walk me through your thought process when you heard that Amazon was buying the rights to Tolkien, all the way up until when you saw that first trailer and everything. Just talk about your thought process on that, first and foremost. I believe I first heard about it 
around mid 2019 to be honest i think when the production of the show began or at least the writing did or something around that and um immediately i kind of read an article that bad robot was going to be attached to it and i just started getting really worried uh obviously attached to the new star wars trilogy um obviously they have uh, a lot of ideas they like to push into their projects and i was a little worried right from the start and uh over the course of like the next year or two, it kind of kept snowballing and I uh, kept seeing more and more about the, the problems or uh, some of the people that were going to be attached to the cast. And I was just, I just, cause I I'm very passionate about Lord of the Rings. It's my favorite movie trilogy ever. I, it was the first like major fantasy book I ever read. I read the Hobbit. I read the Silmarillion. I consider myself to be at least like a, an above average fan. I can't, I can't exactly like quote, some parts of the books, like I see some people on YouTube doing on like a daily basis, but I, I, I do know a good chunk of the history and I, it's, and it, it's, it's kind of sad just from a, a real like fan perspective to see what's been happening. Yeah. So it's kind of like we, like we've talked about it. it, it I feel like a kind of the overall consensus coming out of the late 2010s when kind of all this started uh, coming into the early 2020s, we, you know, kind of a, a, the death of fandom as, as you know, we'll call it, you know, where kind of all, all of these studios have all these IPs, all of our favorite stuff. And they're again, just kind of twisting and manipulating these things in order to try and fill out these quotas that ultimately do that end up resembling something much less than what it is that we fell in love with in the first place. And then after a while, they try to make us feel guilty about not liking the subpar material that they're putting out. You know, I'm not talking exclusively about Lord of the Ring Rings of Power. I'm just talking to just kind of in general, the pop culture IP that, um, you know, kind of sphere that we're in right now. My kind of general thoughts on it are in a strange way. It was, it was really weird because my whole thing was, I remember being in high school. Cause I was a, I was a sophomore in high school when that first Hobbit movie dropped, because that, that, that was December of 2012. And I remember being really excited for it. And this was, I believe, at the time when The Hobbit was originally only going to be two movies. This was before they revealed that it was going to be three. And I was like, okay, so at the very least, that means we're going to get Smaug in this movie, because I'd read The Hobbit book at that point. I'm like, oh, man, just even it's just like one one-off fantasy. If Jackson can do even half of what he did with the Lord of the Rings movies, this is going to be insane. You know, he's got even more tentacles and more toys to play around with. And then I saw where they cut the movie off. Like, I was doing some reading on it, and I saw where they cut the movie off, and I'm like, Wait, what? That's that's where they're cutting it off? Like, what? Yeah. It's like, I'm like, that's that's barely even a third of that's not even a full third of the book. What the hell? You know, where the where the Eagles after they after they escape from the goblin mines and Bilbo gets the ring from Gollum and then the Eagles, so that's where it ends? Like, I'm like, they they have almost like the rest of the book. The Hobbit's not that big of a book, and that's when they announced that they were doing it as three movies. That's when I'm like, okay, like I, I don't care. So that's kind of like when my that was kind of Early on, when I started to realize, I'm like, oh, they're they're never gonna get this right. I'm like, Lord of the Rings was it. It was one and done. They already kind of screwed this up. So I've kind of not really been in on the whole Lord of the Rings train for a while now. Now, what I will say is that kind of so I guess kind of that's where I come into it because going into um what's it called because going into kind of everything that kind of comes out now that is related to a big budget IP. You know, again, I just feel like we've been so let down by almost everything that's come out in the last couple of years. Now to the point where even Marvel, which for the most part was so consistent for that three to four year stretch period, um, is now, for for the most part, with the exception of 
I, I think like one or two things, almost everything has been kind of a disappointment, a letdown, you know, on top of just the overall influx that we've gotten. That's a conversation for a later day, you know? But so I guess kind of because I've been so trained and become so cynical to just not buy into anything and not think that anything is going to be good. I will say that it has kind of allowed for me to be surprised a little bit. You know, I had absolutely no expectations going into House of the Dragon uh, because of obviously what the final season of Game of Thrones did. And that show has actually been pretty impressive. And so what I'll say is that after watching these first two episodes of Rings of Power, I'm not going to say that I'm majorly excited. I don't think it's groundbreaking or any way, shape, or form. What I'll say is I was impressed by the visuals. Because, again, I'm, I'm still kind of in my mind, I'm still kind of trained as a television watcher to see, like, you know, things like, <coughs> you know, like some of the CG that we saw on Lost or some other thing. So, obviously, seeing the CG and, and, the, and the level of visual prowess that we're used to seeing on the big-budget blockbusters on the small screen is always going to be impressive to someone like me. Not, and not to mention that, and you brought up this was a really interesting point that we were talking about before we actually got on the stream, which is where... You were saying how a lot of the characters have felt like they were attempting to mimic Tolkien as opposed to actually understanding the language. I want to dive into that more once we actually get to kind of the differences between the source material that it's adapting. But I definitely, and again, this is just coming from somebody who, again, really only has the movies. I read the books, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, not The Silmarillion, but... I have to say that for the most part, I always enjoyed watching the movies more, just because those books, because of obviously Tolkien and the way that he writes, I always felt like they were kind of a little bit too dense and not really that enjoyable of a read. And especially because it was the only instance where I've watched the movies and then read the books after the fact, which is something that I almost never do now. It just felt like kind of a drag, especially since there was an entire sequence of Return of the King, the book that was not at all included for the filmmaking, I think personally for the better. So my whole thing is it's like, Okay, it's been enough time since I've seen the Lord of the Rings movies. Again, I watch those movies religiously. I watch them at least once a year. So, while I know that obviously what I'm seeing is not at all probably what Tolkien intended and definitely nothing really even resembling the Peter Jackson movies, but for what it is that I got, I was not disappointed, is what I will say. Kind of as, as the kind of cap off in, in that very, very long stretch. So... Kind of before we got into kind of the biggest differences, I guess I'll give like a little bit of a breakdown as far as what this show is about because I feel like there was a little bit of confusion going into as far as what the show was going to be about because I definitely remember when I heard that it's like, oh, wait, so it's just about Sauron forging the rings? Like, like why do we care? We got that in the prologue of Fellowship. Why do we care about that? And then I realized, I'm like, oh, but then I started doing some more reading and realized, I'm like, oh, no, they're covering the Second Age, which is this whole long period of time that happened almost thousands, at least a couple thousand years before the events of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, which take place during the Third Age of Middle-Earth. So basically what we're watching in this um, in this show, and what we're going to be getting throughout the course of the show, which again, Eli, you'll be able to go in more in-depth to once we actually start breaking down the differences between this and the source material that it's based on, is essentially what we're watching is Middle-Earth, long, long, long before the events of The Hobbits. You know, we see a young Galadriel, we see a young Elrond present in this show, kind of about the coming of the elves from, uh, I, I believe, their, their home country of Valinor to Middle-Earth in order to, uh, the opening kind of prologue basically breaks down that they are basically trying to stop the first ancient evil that came to Earth before Sauron, which was, of course, Morgoth, their defeating of him, and then how Sauron would eventually infiltrate uh, the elves and eventually corrupt the men of Numenor into, well, not necessarily Numenor, but essentially corrupting 
turning the elves into crafting the rings of power, which would eventually result in him forging the one ring in the fires of Mount Doom, which would eventually result in the fall of Numenor, the corrupting of the nine kings into the Nazgul, and essentially kind of all the events that we hear about in the prologue of Fellowship, which again, all this takes place thousands upon thousands of years, and presumably, maybe if not this season, then possibly the next season, because I believe they've greenlit this for season two, which will eventually result in Isildur um, cutting the ring from Sauron's hand and Sauron vanquishing, essentially, is what we're going to be getting in this show. So, before we actually break down uh, kind of what we... Uh, actually, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to get into it. So, Eli, you know what? I'm pushing it up now. I, I basically had it, had it outlined in the notes here as far as, like, giving him a whole rant. So, Eli, do your thing. Break it down for us. How, well, first of all, how well did I do? How well did I do with basically kind of the overall description as far as what we're going to be getting in the show? I mean, I guess you, you did a fine job. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, the whole the whole second age was Sauron kind of planting his seeds of evil within the, the races of men and the elves and kind of turning them against each other and just trying to cause as much chaos he can for his inevitable rise again, um, you know, before uh, the end of the second age, which is where we see that final battle, the prologue Lord of the Rings, where that was uh, called like the, the War of the Last Alliance, I believe, or... War? No, sorry, that was the War of the Elves and Sauron. But yeah, if, I, well, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that what they said in the in the movie, and again, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, because again, this is not my area of expertise at all. But I think that Galadriel, when she's narrating it, says it's a last alliance of elves and men. But I don't know if that's the actual name of the battle or what she was just using to describe it. Uh, that sounds about right. Um, I haven't actually seen the movie since like last year, but um, <sighs> it is they they. They did get some things right. Um, there were some little references I saw in the first few episodes that I actually kind of appreciated. I'm like, okay, they, they're at least sort of getting details, but they really condensed a lot down to the point where some of the decisions, some of the characters who are very well-established characters within the lore make, and it's very contradicting. Uh, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to begin, to be honest. Uh, yeah, so essentially, well, like I said, what we get in the opening scene of the first episode is Galadriel kind of essentially carrying out this revenge mission because her brother dies in the fight against Morgoth. They extinguish Morgoth, but Sauron is still alive and out there, so she's essentially leading this revenge quest to go and, um, to go and uh, essentially take out Sauron for good. But obviously, again, this is before the forging of the One Ring. This is before the forging of any ring. So again, but nobody. Know, but the whole thing is, she's been the thing that's established. She's been hunting for Sauron for so long that nobody even knows if he's still a thing. You know, her other soldiers are starting to not believe in her as well. And I, I feel like this is where a lot of the kind of let's call it uh, favorite buzzwords that a lot of the internet likes to throw on. You know, uh, woke, uh, clickbaity, all all that stuff. really starts to factor in because Eli, as you were telling me, like. Gladriel apparently never had a brother. A lot of that stuff was just fabricated for the show itself. There is a lot that was fabricated. I knew later on Isildur is going to have a sister, and she never existed. It, and it's it's just a series of decisions that I don't really agree with. And Galadriel is one of the most powerful elves to have ever existed, one of the most beloved characters to have ever existed in the, the Tolkien legendarium. And... I mean, she's so powerful with magic. She doesn't really need to be swinging a sword everywhere. And it's just, that's one thing. And especially that opening sequence of her leading her her company there to the supposed fortress that was left behind by Sauron. And how the one person falls and she she's just like, no, let's keep moving. It's That's, that's almost like kind of, 
alienating her from the audience it's just like all right how do you expect me to root for this person when she's not even going to care about her own people and i don't know it's... Well, it also doesn't help that pretty much every other male elf figure that we see her interact with you know her second in command the young elrond ironically enough portrayed by an actor who was also portrayed another stark, younger yeah. figure yeah robert rmao aka young ned stark from season six and seven of game of thrones and gil galad who I actually thought was really interesting portrayed by benjamin walker aka the lead of abraham lincoln vampire hunter that's who that which i just thought that's that connection right there is hilarious right there it also doesn't help that literally every single male elf that she interacts with is telling her oh you know you've been on this revenge quest for so long sauron has not been seen the war is over you know like that the whole thing that's established is like the elves have been in middle earth for so long that they're like yeah we're ready to go back now this is one thing that just a quick side note that i thought was always a little bit confusing so do the elves come from the same place that sauron and gandalf and i i believe they're my art is is the undying land is that the same place where they all come from Yes, or no, Valinor, right? Valinor is the Undying Lands, yes. Okay, so, but, well, but I guess kind of the source of confusion comes from, so obviously, at the end of the first episode, for everybody who's watched it, you know, when we get the Harfoots, you have this comet that crash lands, and there's a guy there connected to the comet, which is full of, uh, what is full of, you know, gray light, you know, amazing light. Um, You don't know who he is, but the assumption is that he's Gandalf, and uh, the assumption, right, that, that we pointed out is that he's Gandalf, and so that always made me confused. So it's like, wait, why did the elves sail from Valinor to Middle Earth, but the wizards crash land on a, 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 a on a comet? Like that that made that didn't really make that much sense to me. I mean, again, it's fantasy, so again, there's always going to be some kind of looseness there. But that was a little bit confusing to me. And also, I just always thought that it was so obviously. I know that Sauron predates the elves and the whole thing of him being, you know, eventually coming into into um Morgoth's service. That all happens in the first age, which is another thousand years before all of this. But like. I always felt like there was kind of some dissonance there as well, you know, where it's just like where basically from from what I've understood is that it's a lot of changes to the original source material that are changes that don't really necessarily need to be there. So I guess kind of Eli, what what I what I'd like you to do for us now is kind of break down essentially the events that we witnessed in these first two episodes, but how they happen as recounted in the Silmarillion, essentially, because I've never read the Silmarillion. I'm I'm not exactly sure, and I know there's that's a lot to condense essentially, but. Oh gosh! I mean, there were there were a lot of changes that that really happened. I mean, first off, the elves never kind of just all migrated from Valinor to fight Morgoth. Uh, there there were already a lot of elves in Middle Earth. Uh, they kind of sort of portrayed it, at least to me, as this like undiscovered land that maybe was inhabited by dwarves. It's like no, they were they were always there. It was actually men that were the last people to come to Middle Earth. Um, that way after the elves, and there were many wars against Morgoth and his forces during that first age and they kind of summed it up into one like centuries long war and I felt like that kind of invalidated a lot of the conflicts and uh, there was just so much that happened um, I mean oh, it just was very very interesting uh, Galadriel like her her arc kind of in that first episode whether she should stay behind and fight or things like that her decision between going to the Undying Lands or not she never had the option to begin with to go to the Undying Lands. Um, I won't kind of go on a tangent, but it, it had to do with this kind of like uh, a schism between the elves a long time ago between uh, one of the great kings. He uh, he killed some of his family members in order to take the throne. And depending on which side elves sided with in that conflict, uh, that's kind of depends on who was permitted to go to the Undying Lands and when Gilgalad was giving that speech to Galadriel and some of the other warriors there that you were all permitted to now go, uh, elves in general are always permitted to go 
to the Undying Lands. It's more of like their choice. Um, at least the ones that that sided on, uh, you know, the side of uh, Feanor and the the great that civil war there. And it's and they didn't. I feel like they don't portray the elves as like as grandiose and like mystical as, as like even the, as they do in like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, elves are like immortal. They're like in, so in like entwined with nature, and there's like they, there's amazing warriors with like access to these like amazing sources of magic, and it, it feels like in this show they're kind of just like pointy-eared humans that just live for a long time. You know you know what's funny about that? I actually kind of had a thought about that as well, because you're right. I definitely got the sense when watching these first two episodes of it's like, okay, immediately I'm like, these are not the same elves that I saw yeah. in um in the Lord of the... in the movies, obviously. Now, granted, again, it's thousands of years before we see them and all that, but I definitely got the sense of where... So, obviously, I'm aware that, like, okay, so I know, obviously, again, part of there's going to be some trickery involved here where Sauron infiltrates the elves, disguises somebody else. You know, he makes contact with this great elf forger named Celebrimbor, who we meet, obviously, in this episode, who uh, he contracts Elrond out because he needs help in order to create a great forge for a great undertaking, you know, that has never been done before. And, again, I'm assuming that that's eventually going to come back around and reveal, you know, and once we get involved with Sauron and Numenor. But I almost get the sense, like, they're trying to portray the elves, all of them here, like the Jedi Masters in the Star Wars prequels, where again they're kind of so yeah. lofty and on their and on their high hill that they can't see the evil, or the, the what, what's it called, you know, the um the the snake in the garden, if you will, you know, the evil that's come to infiltrate them. But my problem with that is, okay, that was already kind of a dumb enough story mechanism 20 years ago when Lucas did it. You know, people have been making excuse after excuse after excuse as far as how Palpatine was able to disguise himself and fool all the Jedi Masters despite the fact that he was right under their noses the entire time. It's a right. really, really, really loose thread there and I don't know if them repeating that in Lord of the Rings is going to work, especially because I have a feeling that it's going to be a situation where once Sauron is revealed, because we haven't actually seen, outside of the flashbacks, we haven't actually seen Sauron yet in the present day and age, there's been, like, you know, little hints here and there, you know, like I said, like, the orcs that are coming back, the various glowing symbols all over Middle-Earth, you know, we're seeing different regions of Middle-Earth that we never saw in the movies, both between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Ring movies, you know, we see Eregion, which is this realm of the elves, uh, the place where the Harfoots are staying, I can't remember the name of that, we actually get to see the kingdom of Khazad-dum in its full glory, you know, that we saw in Fellowship of the Ring, um, we're gonna obviously see the island of Numenor, which famously was destroyed, obviously, during the war with Sauron, but kind of What's really weird to me is I'm like, okay, why are they going out of their way to portray the elves as these lofty kind of, you know, uh, like essentially like pretentious, like kind of out with the old, in with the new sort of way, you know? like why, Because essentially what that's doing is that's going to make us root for Sauron, essentially, as far as the power that's coming in to take them over, you know? and I, I, I already guess am, like... honestly, after these first few episodes. Well... <laughs> <laughs> comes from it's like okay if we're supposed to be rooting for Galadriel and Elrond as far as being the scrappy underdogs who are like not exactly gonna go along with the with, with the um what's it called with, with, with the with the status quo but here, here's where the problem of that comes from you know and like I said I, let, let me know if we're on the same page here once Sauron actually crafts the rings and then uses the one ring to take over everyone the else the the elves resist because the elves when they were forging the rings had the foresight to not craft the rings under Sauron's influence. So that's why when Sauron uses the ring to take over everyone else, the elves are not corrupted. You know, it's Galadriel, Gilgalad, and I forgot who the third elf was that uh, had the ring. And then I know Elrond gets Gilgalad's ring, and then Gandalf gets the third elf's ring, whose name I'm not remembering, because the whole thing is by the time you get to the third age in the Lord of the Rings, it's Galadriel, Gandalf, and Elrond that are the, that are the holders of the three rings. 
that are that are left. You know, the dwarves, there, there's some explanation as to how they're able to resist Sauron, but the whole thing is once Sauron crafts the Ring of Power, that's how he's able to corrupt the nine kings at the time, who I don't remember if they were all Numenorean or if just one of them was, but that's how he's able to kind of bring them under their influence, turn them into the Nazgul, and essentially begin the downfall of the kingdoms of men until it's really just Gondor and Rohan that are left by the time we get to the Rings of Power. So already there's a little bit of a confusion there where it's like, and that's something that I've kind of always been confused on. Is I'm like, okay, so if Celebrimbor was the one who Sauron was able to corrupt into making the rings, but Celebrimbor had the foresight to keep the elf rings separate from the rest. Like, I don't know. Like, walk walk me through that whole thing right there, because there's some there's some little thing that I'm missing here here and there. Uh, well, to my knowledge, um, he didn't really alter the rings that much. It was more that uh, the elves just had the power to sense that something was wrong when they put the rings on and they felt kind of felt Sauron's presence. And that was why they, they kind of resisted it is they just were just done with the rings there. Um, uh, the ring kind of the whole theme with the ring kind of appeals to, it kind of brings out the worst in people like greed, obviously is one of the biggest themes with the, the original trilogy. And, you know, it's just like this shiny little gold object. And we see it in the Hobbit too. Uh, um, and, it, I, I agree with you. Um, there, there is a little confusion as to how it's going to work. I personally don't really like the way they're setting up uh, Celebrimbor in this show. Uh, I don't think he really fits what kind of his uh, his reputation kind of gives well, him. Well, real quick, so, so, walk, so walk us through that, because again, Celebrimbor is a character that is completely original, has never been seen, at least as far as if we're talking about people who have only watched the movies, you know, the, both the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. Again, Celebrimbor, I'm pretty sure, is not mentioned in any one of those. So walk us through, who is Celebrimbor? Why is he so important to the lore and the mythology as far as that goes? You know, why is he such an important figure? Yeah, Celebrimbor is considered to be, like, the greatest craftsman ever, at least the greatest, like, elf craftsman ever. Um, he's created like countless weapons and other like kind of magical artifacts that have just been a great like help to the elves. Uh, he was at one point the like a lord of I I can't remember the names. I'm sorry, people of the internet, but uh, he he did kind of rule his own region of the elves for quite a long time, and he he was at least kind of curious like he was in the show, but he was definitely more of a warrior than the show portrays him to be. I mean, he he's fought in countless wars, and he he's he he was always curious i would say was that was kind of what his uh his big turning point was was his uh, kind of his need for discovery and i do think they set up that pretty well in the show but just for what we're getting right now i just don't think it's the real him i don't know if you've ever seen the video game like uh, shadow of war Shadow I mean, you know, it's funny because uh, the, the, because of how the YouTube algorithm works. The YouTube algorithm has been showing me a lot of clips from oh, yeah. Shadow of War. And I do understand that once Celebrimbor kind of realizes that it's Sauron and once he's able to kind of make the distinction and separate the elf rings from everything else, I know that Sauron captures him and tortures him and eventually kills him. I know that. But... Um, what's it called? But yeah, so so the point being is that, like I said, Celebrimbor is a pretty crucial figure because he's essentially, along with Sauron, uh, aside from Sauron, he's the one who crafts all the rings of power, you know, yes. the ones that are kind of narrated in the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, you know, three rings that were made for the elves, seven for the dwarves, nine for mortal men that were doomed to die, but they were all tricked, they were all deceived for in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron crafted the one ring to rule them all, you know, essentially. So, it, it I, I guess kind of, my overall thought process is that there's a – and again, it's why it's so difficult, I feel, to talk about just these episodes as entities in and of themselves because 
it feels like just primarily set up like we haven't actually gotten the meat and potatoes of the story yet so I can't really comment as far as what we're going on what we're going to get we can only obviously guess as far as where we're going to get again aside from the Galadriel stuff uh, who, where the whole thing is that Galadriel is about to go into Valinor, but then turns back and jumps into the water and is now swimming back towards Middle-earth. You have Elrond, who's been paired up with Celebrimbor by Gil-Galad in order to try and forge an alliance with the dwarves of Khazad-dûm in order to begin forging, well, again, what we can assume to be forging of the rings. Then we have, and then we have the two storylines that seem to be directly setting up for Sauron, the one with, um, what's it called? The one elf who is falling in love with a human. I can't remember the elf's name. I know he's played by Ismail uh, Cruz Cordova. And the whole thing there is that the, the, the woman has a son who's got a Morgul blade that the orcs are now searching for. And then the and then you also have the Harfoots, which you can get into as well, and their interaction with this figure that falls from the sky, who, again, we can presume to be Gandalf, which is what you've told me is already... And that was already something that I figured out, because I'm like, wait, I thought the wizards didn't arrive in Middle-earth until the Third Age. I'm like, I, I'm like to my knowledge, there were no yep. wizards during the, the whole forging of the rings during the Second Age. So... First off, just a couple questions that I have. The the blade with the kid, like, and and when they fight with with the orcs. First of all, how are the, how did it take them that long to kill the orc? When I'm pretty sure the whole thing with orcs is that the orcs are like the only kind of large force that's more disposable than stormtroopers, where they they get killed yep. so easily that like the fact that it took them that long to kill that orc is kind of hilarious. But also like, what is the deal with that blade? What is that supposed to be setting up? Like, I, I like like is was there anything about that in the Silmarillion or no? That's like completely original for the show. Uh, no, that plot line is completely original. Uh, we don't know who the kid is. We don't know who the 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 mother is. They had they've never ever been mentioned in the archives or whatever Amazon has the rights to. Uh, I'm not really sure where it's going to be taken. I mean, we know where it has to end. Um, it's just it, it does feel a little unnecessary, and I and I can understand the perspective as someone who probably doesn't understand a lot of the lore or the history of the world. How it's just like. It doesn't really feel like there's a plot yet, you know? Right, um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I, I've felt really bored during a lot of those scenes. Yeah, um, those, those are the sequences with... definitely where it felt like there wasn't as much happening. The stuff with the Harfoots and the stuff with the mom and her son, as far as just like, okay, that's just kind of there as hinted setup. Like, the stuff with everything with Elrond and the dwarves and Gil-Galad and Celebrimbor, I was pretty engaged by. And even though the Galadriel stuff, it was like, that was whatever. It was cool, you know, she's on the ocean. They have to deal with this giant CB. That was at least compelling, you know, for what it was, you know? And that all seems to be, like, directly leading up to something and building off of stuff. Again, those are characters that we're familiar with versus the characters and the other two storylines again we don't really know who any of those characters are they're not even aside from the guy who might be Gandalf they're presumably not character they're not characters that have any basis in Tolkien's works they're completely original characters that have been made for the show so now the Harfoots man this is really where I feel like a lot of the criticism came for because famously and again and this has been a large kind of not discrepancy but always kind of a little bit of a weird thing was famously that there were no minorities or people of color in Lord of the Rings originally because obviously when Tolkien wrote and published the source material it was published during what the between what the 1920s and 30s immediately after World War One in England so of all places you know and, and, and Tolkien was a linguist first and foremost you know so it was his, his probably overall interaction and knowledge of minorities just within the world at that point keep in mind what you know what period of time we're talking about was relatively small to begin with and so, naturally, that has kind of always been a little bit of a discrepancy as we've kind of moved into the internet and modern age as far as people saying, okay, why are there no minorities or black people in 
uh, what's it called, in the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, and the answer simply comes from the fact that it's like, yeah, that just wasn't even a thing that Tolkien was even, forget, uh, like, con- just not even consciously aware of when he was writing that. Now, whether that's a fault of his, that's a podcast for a different day, but it definitely feels like with the Harfoots and then also with the Dwarf, that just feels like a massive overcorrection like Amazon trying to fulfill their diversity quotas that we know. And again, this is not, and just so you know, the internet knows, this is nothing that is kind of kept a secret or anything. We know that these massive corporations literally have diversity quotas where they're like, okay, we are contractually obligated to have a certain, to uh, to have hired a certain number of people that fulfill this minority, this minority, this minority. That, that is a thing. You can all go and look it up. That is completely valid. So Eli, the, the inclusion of the, that, that whole kind of stance, I mean, People have been, it's one of those things that, again, it's so difficult to talk about in the modern age because, again, I feel like if you even try to talk about it, you can immediately get labeled as a racist and a bigot, which, but but again, it's like, I'm not going to say that really it was anything that I noticed. It's like, okay, so for, for my money at least, it's like, okay, so obviously we know that the Harfoots are eventually going to become the Hobbits. You know, I, I don't really know kind of where the where that lines up. It's okay, like hobbits now. Cool, you know that that's the thing that they're doing here. You know, like it it it, it didn't really stand out to me as far as it's like okay, I, I don't really I guess kind of the point that I'm trying to make here is I don't really understand why people are making such a big deal about it. But I don't know. That's just me. You you take it from here. Well, what's so interesting about it is that there's just no need. I feel like because. A fan wrote a letter to Tolkien in, like, the 70s or 80s, I believe, um, asking about, like, kind of, you know, different races of people within, uh, you know, the world of Middle-earth. And he responded to uh, the fan, like, saying, like, that there were more diverse people, like, towards the eastern and southern lands, like, the regions that, like, you know, uh, Sauron conquered. And even, like, the southern continent that we, like, never see anything of except for, like, the unfinished tales. And... It really is a diverse world, and there are so many opportunities that they could have used to introduce people of color and things like that. They could have taken this show as like a liberty to explore some of the most, you know, the those unexplored or regions of the world that we never see. But instead, they're kind of just race swapping characters that, or races, or groups of people that we have kind of already seen as predominantly white and fair skinned, and obviously. It was written in a different era. Tolkien based his work on, or at least Middle Earth itself, on medieval Europe. And so you were always going to never really have people of color, or at least at the forefront of the story. And I guess from just me, just seeing a group of like nomadic people kind of being like so like racially diverse doesn't really make sense because right especially like the harfoots in general just seem to be like wanting to keep outsiders out so it almost makes you wonder how how they were so you know how they right. kind of started to begin with exactly kind of kind of it's like okay so like kind of the the interspecies versus intraspecies kind of like again like who knew that we were going to be having like a diversity conversation for lord of the rings of all people but i guess kind of the reason why those points are important to bring up is because it's not like Tolkien was uneducated on this stuff, I guess. I got a little bit of a contradiction to my previous point, but, like, the whole thing is that, like, Tolkien was a linguist. He was an, uh, I, I believe he was also a little bit of an anthropologist. Like, he was a vast, vast studier of cultures, how they worked, you know, how they functioned and all of that, you know, the, the line of history. He was 
vastly, vastly into that. The whole thing is that, like, kind of when he was conceiving of the idea of the Lord of the Rings was that he essentially kind of, and this is something that we talked about before as well, he essentially kind of constructed this the Silmarillion as this entire backstory for this world so that there could be all of this different rich lore that went into it just so that he could have some sort of a basis for Lord of the Rings. So it's not like this is just somebody who was just randomly willy-nilly making stuff up. You know, this is somebody who had a vast understanding of cultures that were there at the time. So that's kind of why when we talk about this idea of kind of, for lack of a better word, introducing these diversity quotas, which is what they are. Again, let, let's not let, let, let's not have any facades up. Introducing these diversity quotas into the work, that's what people are talking about when they don't understand the need for it because this is based off of work that, while again, is very much based in the time in which it was released, it's work from somebody who very much so knew what they were talking about as far as, and the other thing as well, and this is actually a point from my brother-in-law that he brought up that I thought was actually ingenious, which is that Tolkien specifically was not a fan of allegory, right? So, which yep. is why whenever people try to make kind of comparisons to say, oh, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings was based off his experiences in World War One, it's like, no, not really. Tolkien wasn't really a fan of that. So the whole thing is that, like, any parallels to our world or world events, they're really more of just an influence than direct references, you know? Like, the like the, right. the, the, the War of the Ring is not supposed to be World War One. you know? There have been many people who have, been, who have made comments comparisons to that beforehand uh but ultimately at the end of the day it's it's not you know you can make those illusions and comparisons if you want but at the end of the day it's it's really that's not what it's about so kind of all of the what all of this comes to say is that it really is more so a matter of i guess take it for what you will you know if it works for you great if not okay but i i, I guess kind of again i'm just i'm still i'm not a fan of this idea of again just Everybody immediately saying, oh, if somebody has a problem with how this was adapted, you're immediately a racist because you don't like black hobbits. Like, yeah, I'm, just, I mean, I'm, we've, I'm not we've a been fan seeing of that. It, we've been seeing that same formula with Star Wars, obviously, all the criticism around yep. Reva in the Obi-Wan show and how even before the show came out, they were already putting out articles about, right. you know, the, the racist uh, attacks. Almost like the studios are trying and... to put out this stuff in order to, like, kind of preemptive, preemptive stuff because they know that it just does well for marketing. At this point. Oh yeah, and it, it's just their way to deflect criticism and and things like that, and it's almost like, and you see it now with like Amazon and Disney, how they're kind of they've been hiding all the reviews on like Rotten Tomatoes and these other websites, yep. and it's almost like we're kind of I think progressing I saw backwards of, in that sense. Yeah, I think again, it's just it's more of the censorship thing that we've been talking about, and yeah. I think I saw another thing today of where Amazon was like deleting the IMDb rankings yep. or something, and like yep. not showing any of the reviews, and it's like the episodes have only been out for like three days like they only dropped it's monday that we're talking about this these only came out on friday like it hasn't even it isn't even like it's been a week you know but again it just shows that like again how many people just love this property and how again there's a reason why this property was always going to be difficult to adapt regardless you know again you talked about the guys who are responsible for the making for you know who for developing it their names are jd Payne and patrick mckay and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that the only thing that they'd worked on is they'd worked on uh, Bad Robots, specifically with some of the most recent J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies with Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi, if, if I'm remembering correctly when you oh, said you that, can, right? you can check. That's all they have to their name. And it's right. just the quality of those movies. I mean, it just baffles me how they got the job to run the most expensive TV show ever made. Uh, I just 
it, it baffles me, but it's it's the world we're living in now. And I think it all kind of stems from Jeff Bezos, how he wanted, he said a few years back, how he just wanted to make the next Game of Thrones. I feel like that's why Amazon also picked up Wheel of Time, right. which kind of turned into a project that just uh, on a rewatch didn't really seem to have as much passion in it as I originally thought. And as someone who's also read the Wheel of Time books, pretty disappointing as well. And it just makes you it's it's sad it's sad yeah. it's just, it just again it, it's taking the, these works that were ultimately you know works of passion and turning them into just more corporatized ip products you know which is kind of essentially like i said it, it, it's kind of goes back to the point that we brought up at the beginning as far as like kind of the idea of fandom and what it originally was and how it's kind of been bastardized and kind of taken by these corporations to kind of turned and it uses a weapon against the fans of all people and now they're trying to make out the fans to be the bad guys here and yeah sure obviously yeah. you know twitter has been no help for that kind of when the star wars movie came out but again for the most part Fans are fans of this stuff because they have passion for it, you know? Corporations, they're the ones that just want to kind of make money off of it. So keep this, just keep that in mind when you're thinking about kind of who has the right intentions. Now, I did want to pivot into something else kind of more interesting, and I'm glad that you brought up the kind of the Wheel of Time comparisons because it seems to me, and I think kind of this is where ultimately I think this will matter more in the long run, is how obviously, again, we've been talking about for the longest time kind of what's going to eventually overtake Marvel, you know, where I think in the last year and a half now, it's safe to say that Marvel does not at all have the stones that they have. We're getting an over... I can't think of the word right now, but we're getting a vast... Oh, like too too many superhero properties for lack of a better word. I think I think the box oh, yeah. office numbers uh, show ultimately that people are starting to become sick of it. Uh, and even though some of the, the and even though a lot of the money is still there, kind of the overall criticism just seems to and the favor just seems to have gone down. But I will say that like between 2021 up until now, the amount of fantasy products that we have been getting between theaters and streaming, you know, whether you want to talk about Wheel of Time, Dune, this House of the Dragon. The Sandman, which just recently came out, I know that's more so based off of like a you know a graphic novel, but that's also got a lot of fantasy. So like I don't know, man. It seems it seems like fantasy is starting to make a little bit of a comeback, you know. Where I feel like they were always like trying to. Where again, I feel like the problem was that Lord of the Rings, the movies, originally set the bar so high that. It almost felt like everything that tried to do it after the fact kind of suffered as a result of it, which is why we ultimately ended up getting more kind of more science fiction projects as a result that eventually kind of transitioned itself into superhero affair, you know? But now, I don't know, like, what are your thoughts on kind of the whole, like, you know, vast amounts of fantasy products that we've been getting in the last couple of, in the last year and a half up to now? I'm actually really glad you asked me that because just as a huge fantasy fan, I've read all these other series that haven't been adapted yet and... I, I get the push because with comic books, there's only so many characters that you can eventually cover. Right. We've covered Superman. We've covered Batman. We've covered Justice Not League. Not to mention we just the Avengers. inherent nature. And, and again, this is a problem that I've been talking about a lot as well, which is the inherent nature of comic books, how they're inherently designed to never end. But that does not exactly. at all gel well with movies and TV, which part of the reason why we love those is because they do eventually have endings. So they're already started to come into that problem where, okay, the Marvel Cinematic Universe technically already ended, but now they're still trying to keep it going and say, oh, but that was just a setup for more. But people are already starting to latch yeah. onto the fact that it's like, yeah, the, their best days are behind them. And I feel like we're finally starting to see kind of the flaws of the comic book industry, just having all these different writers and people working on all these different stories that eventually have to just combine for one huge, pro you know, uh, complete overall story and it's that just like oh there's so many inconsistencies and plot holes and why didn't this character do this or where was this character doing what and yeah no i mean we're absolutely starting to see it with marvel and i think we're definitely more on the the downward 
slope of things, at least until like the Kang Dynasty comes out and you right, know, exactly. inevitably people are gonna be Co- walking. A couple more back things again, that I'm looking but... forward to up until that point. Yeah, but for sure, yeah, up until it's it's gonna be a, a little bit of a rocky road, I think, for the next couple of years of Marvel as far as seeing which projects I... kind of you know people like more so, but but I do just want to touch on the fantasy thing uh, real quick again is because there absolutely has been a push again. Uh, just even fantasy book sales have been going up tremendously the last few years, even after The Hobbit. I mean, there's so many series that are coming out. There's like a whole – there's all these competitions for like self-published fantasy books every year. And I just feel like literally uh, just – from the writing perspective, it's just all been on a huge upward slope. And I know you probably have never heard of these, but I implore you to really like do some research after this is that they, they have begun to adapt even a lot more like bigger fantasy projects attached to some of like the bigger names. Uh, there's a series called Mistborn by an author named Brandon Sanderson, who I would say is like kind of the modern, uh, the, the most famous modern fantasy author. He's written countless like he's on track to write like 50 books by the age of 50, which is just insane. But what what's really interesting about his books is that they're all several different like fantasy worlds with their own magics, their own histories and cultures and history and lores and everything. And what's so cool is that in every books, he has always at least a few recurring characters and he's essentially, it's called the Cosmere. He's built this, this like immerse, like uh, you know, detailed, like there's all these different planets and stuff within the same universe where we're led to believe and they're finally going to start adapting that to film or something. Production is going to be starting in the next year, according to the author himself, as a in like an interview as of a few weeks ago. So I'm actually really interested to see where that goes. And I think that if that gets as big as it does with the right people behind it, I really think that could be the next like you know like juggernaut to challenge Marvel for the, right. the cinematic dominance there. And I guess that's kind of what's so interesting because again, it feels like again what was kind of one of the good things about the success of Marvel is kind of people's ability to handle, like, higher concept stuff, because I feel like that was always kind of a, a lot of the challenge that, like, was set by a lot of the great trilogies that we got in the 2000s that eventually led into kind of the Marvel takeover of the 2010s, is kind of people gradually beginning to accept, because again, that was a lot of the reasons why a lot of these movies, they attempted at them, but they either failed or were just kind of uh, ended up becoming cult classics after the fact, even though they were not box office successes, is the idea that right. they, I feel like people, specifically in Hollywood, have always been trying to make these products, but they've never really had the mainstream success. Like I said, Star Wars started that a little bit. A lot of the 80s kind of lesser known, you know, cult hits, you know, your never ending stories, your dark crystals, your labyrinths, you know, all of those were kind of necessary in setting the foundations. And then the 90s with the with the independent boom kind of went away from, from that a little bit, and they were more so about just like making blockbusters as family friendly as possible. There wasn't as right. much high concept stuff. And then we get into the 2000s with, again, all those trilogies that I mentioned before, where, again, they're kind of, they're having some high concept stuff, but still keeping it just grounded enough. You know, I feel like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter is kind of ultimately where that peaks. And then that leads into Marvel. But I feel like kind of where Marvel, the drawback of that comes from is the fact of the investment over that long an amount of period of time was something that really only could have happened within those 10, 15, 10 11 years that the Infinity Saga aired, you know, because you had right. Game of Thrones throughout that certain period of time because then you also had the advance of streaming. And so kind of the drawbacks that you're seeing of that now in kind of the post-pandemic and streaming age is that people just don't have time for those for those kind of long-form commitments anymore, at least not for superheroes. But what's interesting now is because people's level of palatability for those really high concept, really out there stuff is out there. It just, again, it's it's opened the door for all of these fantasy things that would have failed if they tried to make, again, they've been talking about, again, Dune was a 
financial behind the scenes and overall flop back in the 80s. They've been trying to make Wheel of Time for literally 20 years at this point, and they're now finally being able to make them. So as far as I'm concerned, like I said, if there's one good thing that we can take away from this conversation, it's that the wheels are off for fantasy. And I'm honestly kind of really excited to see what we get in the next couple of years because I will say that like I kind of too. all the traditional projects that we were originally would have looked forward to like three, four years ago, like I said, just all those kind of relatable IPs that we know about, you know, like again, your Star Wars, your Marvels, your DCs, all the, we kind of know all the tricks and trades and we, we kind of know what to expect from that, you know, so it's kind of hard. The formula to really is just so it. overused at this point. You just, you kind of just know what you're going to get before you even walk exactly. into it. It's like, you know, Black Adam's going to come out in the next year. It's just, he's more of an anti-hero, but at, at the end of the day, we all know he's going to end up saving the day. There's going to be that, And that's another thing of where it's like, again, it, it's, it's the rock. We know exactly. We know exactly. For, yeah. Forget DC. Yeah. We know exactly what to expect from a rock action movie. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And like, but but even, I'll even say this, even with uh, James Cameron and bringing back the Avatar movies, you know, I know a lot of people, again, just making endless jokes about how that movie's never going to come out. But honestly, I'll say that if James Cameron can actually, again, the whole thing that I have always said is, and that everybody's been saying throughout Cameron's entire career is never, ever bet against him. You know, everything was against him on Titanic, and that was the highest grossing movie of all time. Then he spent, again, this is the thing that everybody forgets. There were 12 years, 12 years between Titanic and Avatar. And then Avatar tops it, you know? Now, as far as the, if we're talking just strictly box office, I don't know. But, like, I will say that, like, I have learned to never underestimate James Cameron when it comes to him as a craftsman and a technician. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what he will be able to do as far as crafting the Avatar movies. But, um, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm really, really excited to see what we get as far as kind of high concept fantasy goes. Because, again, Dune, uh, you know, I feel like people's individual thoughts on that kind of aside and, you know, the approach and the structure to it. I still thought Dune, for the most part, was an absolute marvel. I loved everything that Denny brought to the table with that. Really kind of being able to explore some of the trippier, like kind of less palatable elements. And even as recently as 10 years ago, I feel like they never would have been able to do, you know. I, 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 feel like even if they, I feel like even if they had tried to release Dune in, like, 2014, 2015, it wouldn't have worked. It, as opposed to it coming out last year when it did, you know? So, um, yeah, so with that being said, kind of like I said, that, that's kind of a little bit of our uh, fantasy side spiel. But in order to kind of wrap up uh, our Lord of the Rings discussion, I guess so... Where do you think this is going to go, ultimately, as far as not just necessarily with this season? So, obviously, I don't think they've renewed this for season two yet. But where, where, where do you think this is going to go, kind of? So, obviously, again, the end goal is Sauron crafting the Rings of Power. But, like, where do you think this goes? Because, obviously, again, the assumption is that we're going to see not necessarily the fall of Numenor, but we're going to see, like, a major battle sequence happen in Numenor at some point before the right. end of the show. But so, like, at what point, like, do you think that, do you think that this show even lasts, like, past three seasons? Because for me, at least, I don't see them, with the amount of stuff that they're just putting in these two episodes alone, I personally don't see this show lasting more than, like, two, three seasons at most, you know? Especially just I, given how much money they put into them alone. Yeah, I it's... I don't know. I just know from what we're going to see this season. I know Sauron will eventually be revealed by the end. I know we're going to see Numenor. It seems like that's what they're setting up for the third episode with picking up uh, Galadriel and that guy from the, the ship wreckage and things like that. And right. I, I do know eventually, according to the leaks and everything, that, that Galadriel and the, the queen regent of Numenor are going to lead like a at least like a half female army or something into like a big battle against a bunch of orcs or evil. And what's, what's so interesting or just not even interesting. What's just so crazy about that is that th there were three actual Queens in Numenor's history. There are 28 Kings and Queens. Three of them were Queens. And the one they pick to be the actual queen, isn't even one of those three Queens, which I just think is just like, right. It's, you're it's, missing it's, all the marks. It's, it's one like, thing in order to 
try and, and, and force, like I said, the, you know, like I said, the quota, because like I said, it is a quota. They These things have to be in every single TV show now. Again, it is a mandatory thing that this has to be, but it's kind of even more baffling to me when they can't even get that right, where it's like, okay, you actually have this history and all these great, again, female characters to pick, and you're not even going to go with one that's actually a thing. You're just going to make one up? Like, and it, it, it's what? crazy. And it's crazy. Like, Galadriel is, like, literally in, yeah. like, one of the greatest female characters in the whole whole legendarium. She's so powerful. She's so strong. Yeah. And just, like, put, but put then she way. has to wear the man's armor and the, swing the but, sword. Put it this way. Galadriel was, so, Galadriel was such an awesome character that, like, she literally kind of did nothing except look at visions and just do a whole lot of narration in Lord of the Rings. And she's still one of my favorite characters. From all exactly. Movies. Like, exactly. me and my brothers have been making jokes about that for years where we talk about that. They're like, yeah, what does Galadriel actually do in the, in the just for the movies, right? Because we'd only read watched the movies. We're like, right. yeah, what exactly does Galadriel do in those movies aside from just show Frodo the vision and then just do a whole bunch of narration, you know? And, 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 that's and that was like, yeah. It's, that's what's so cool about, like, doing this show because it is also the era where there's, like, the least written, if that makes sense, what was left behind by Tolkien and things like So they obviously did pick an era, era where there is enough flexibility to kind of shove all these, like, extra things that we're seeing that were never, like, made it up stuff. And I don't know. Just, like, like how it right. ties back to, like, what I was saying about the elves, like, just that first scene of her leading that company and how the ice troll just murked a bunch of them right from the start. It's like, yeah. what was the plan and, when they and, actually and, ran and into Sauron? You know? I'll also bring up another point as well in order to kind of maybe quell any dissenters as well as far as, you know, another comparison. So, obviously, again, Amazon very, very deliberately planned this. You know, again, this open... Only what to, oh, this this show premiered only two weeks after House of the Dragon. You know they they're both kind of concerning, very similar themes, which is again at least one of the pressure themes, at least with Galadriel's arc again, the idea of a woman in a predominantly male world. You know again, but I'll tell you the difference as far as how they handle. It. I think the reason why I think House of the Dragon handles it much better because House of the Dragon immediately sets up that Rhaenyra Targaryen's arc is going to be constantly having to overcome. Regardless of, 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 again, how she is perceived, constantly having to overcome the idea of ruling the Iron Throne as being a woman in 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 predominantly a man's world. Where even though her father, or sorry, uh, yeah, her father Viserys announces her as his heir after the unfortunate death of her mother and her newborn brother. The idea right. that she is always going to have some sort of contention from, obviously, her, uh, what's it called, from her Uncle Damon, from the King's Hand, Otto Hightower. You know, that is all very, very established, so it is a part of her arc, and it feels naturalized, you know? Here, there's nothing really that kind of establishes Galadriel as kind of the the role of this woman in this man's world other than, okay, she's just on a hellish revenge quest for her brother who doesn't even exist and they're just having all of these male figures just kind of talk down to her for no reason you know like I, that's the difference it's not really that well set up it's no yeah. it's not set up at all you know it's kind and of it just doesn't make context in, in the lore even the the history they they create like just by condensing everything down they they left so much out and like some of those events that they would have left out would really like shape the characters and like their they're, you know, how would how how they kind of just perceive the world and their experiences and their, you know, what what they would do in certain situations, right. and it's just like a domino effect where you change this one thing, you fundamentally change like these three characters, and just that's why so much just doesn't connect. That's why it feels just so like isolating from everything else. And and I do kind of on that that point about Game of Thrones, like 
Game of Thrones was almost created as like an antithesis to Lord of the Rings, where it's like, oh, there's good and evil. You eventually rise up and do the right thing in the end. The good will win out. Or it's like Game of Thrones. It's like, no, nah, every, every, everyone's pretty shitty. And people do a lot of really crappy things, even when the good option is like right there in front of you just to further better themselves. And obviously it's a much more sexist world, but... And so I understand that why the dynamic for a female character in Game of Thrones would be more compelling in that sense. But it's not like it didn't exist in Lord of the Rings either. I mean, right. you think of Eowyn, how she still killed exactly. the Lich King, right? And, I mean, and again, again, that is the thing that I always talk about when it comes to kind of the modern-day feminist, which is yeah. I'm like, again, look at how they did Eowyn in, uh, obviously, again, in, in those original movies and how amazing her arc is. And again, I still had so many girls who I went to high school with who were all saying that, again, who would quote her quote for nonstop. Again, it made for countless memes on the internet, you know? Exactly. It's like, so that, that's the stuff that I talk about. It's not that... Again, when I when I talk about the idea of anybody who tries to call us out, it's like we're against bad writing. That's all it is. And it's what we see here. Again, I'm interested in the world because of the visuals and kind of what they're setting up and the fact that I don't necessarily know where they're going to go. But I understand the criticisms as far as why people are seeing all the problems that are there. You know what? Ultimately, right. in order to kind of wrap this up, what I'll say is that for these first two episodes, very visually flashy, very engaging. I was never bored watching them. But I don't necessarily know where the story's going to go. I'll watch it for sure because I want to see what's going to happen. But I can't necessarily give it, like, really more than a three and a half out of five just based off those first two episodes. What about you? I've obviously, as somebody who's got a lot more context for this stuff than I do. Uh, pretty much the only character I can even feel myself getting connected to is Elrond. And that's also just because Elrond's one of my favorite characters just in the whole Tolkien mythology. I really can't give it above a two just for all the, the lore-breaking contradictories i've been seeing uh i just i don't know it's just been yeah. overall very disappointing and it just feels like there's no passion behind it from my perspective at least yeah, exactly yeah I, I i couldn't agree with that sentiment more again it like i said as far as uh kind of a soulless blockbuster properties go it definitely feels like that but again the visuals are unbelievable is I what i will say that. like some of that. the best visuals i have ever seen on the TV screen. Again, it is kind of crazy that we're literally bookending the weeks with House of the Dragon and Rings of Power. And because Rings of Power only has eight episodes, they drop the first two episodes at once. House of the Dragon has ten. I think they're literally going to be ending like right at the same time. And I'm like, yep. man, Bezos, if Bezos is not the pettiest human being alive, I don't know. Like, like I don't know what else shows it. So... <laughs> At the end of the day, that was it. That was our review, our recap of the premiere of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. What did you guys think? Thank you for all the comments. I just wanted to give a shout-out to Eric. Thank you for tuning in with all of your comments. And I just wanted to show this one comment, which I thought was hilarious. Michael Sims is talking about me. God, God, calm down and take a tranquilizer. Oh, you have no idea. Oh, if he only knew. Oh, if he only knew. That's all I'm going to say. Eli, thanks again for joining me. This was an absolute blast. Thanks for coming on. Where can the good people follow you on the interwebs? Well, if you want to follow me, I have an Instagram, and uh, that's about it. Uh, if you do, if you do want to give me a follow, send me a DM sometime. I'm more than happy to talk to you. My uh, my handle is uh, e underscore holicky, just like it says on the screen here. Uh, forty five. That is e underscore holicky forty five. And yeah, uh, reach out. I'm always happy to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we I, I had you on. You made your debut last year with Wheel of Time. You helped me rank all the Marvel crap that we got in 2021, along with Eric. Like I said, you were on with us for Barry this year. Um, what's it called? You helped us recap the end of Better Call Saul. I hope to have you on for many, many more episodes. Like I said, you're you're, you're a podcaster in the making. That's all I'm gonna say. Is, uh, oh, is, is don't don't waste your, waste your gift. So of course you can follow myself at Movie Nerd Reviews across all platforms. Be sure to follow the official Talking TV podcast across all platforms. Subscribe to us on YouTube. 
Follow us on Twitch if you're not already. This episode will be available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts uh, tomorrow. And as always, people, 12 seasons in a short film. And watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys next time.